Take your copy of God's Word and turn to Titus chapter 1. As we continue our short journey through this book, while you're turning, we've two sermons prior, one that started with the greeting part, Paul writing to Titus, his child in a common faith. Uh, Then the second sermon, verses 5 through 9, dealing with the qualifications for elder, which is appropriate as we uh, have two men up for election for that today. Today, though, changing gears as we move from kind of the happy bits of the church to the sad bits. I would remind you that God, being infinite in wisdom when He wrote this a long time ago, had you in mind even this day. So when we come to this, His Word, this is God's Word for you today. Titus chapter 1, verse 10. For there are many who are insubordinate, evil talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths, and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable disobedient, unfit for any good work. Father, we ask that You would give life and light in our hearts, and we thank You that Your Word is always true and good. Amen. True confession, I miss the the cartoons of my childhood. They're great shows. I loved how it didn't matter when you cut it on in the episode, you could instantly tell who the good guys and the bad guys were. You could tell who you were supposed to be cheering for. Whether it was the color of their hat that let you know they were the good guy or the bad guy, or whether or not they were drawn with a happy face or an angry face, whether or not their eyebrows were kind of rounded or the angry eyebrows, you could tell instantly is, oh, that's the bad guy. You knew right away. Or the animals, the, the cute, friendly ones were the ones that we were supposed to, to like, and the coyotes and the horrible things were the ones that we weren't supposed to. And I liked how not only could you instantly tell who was good and who was bad, but their actions were like Um, almost like over-the-top ridiculous to the point that you're like, well, yeah, I want to cheer for him. Like, oh, we're the bad guy. Our goal is to kill everybody in this whole family and destroy this entire people. You're like, wow, that's horrible. I, I want them to lose. Or almost this kind of cartoonish evil villain of we're going to destroy the whole world. Why? Because we hate the world. Ah, 
We want to rob. We want to kill. We want to steal. We want to, we want to do all of these evil things. And it made it so obvious who the good guys were and the bad guys were and how easy it was to cheer for the right side. And they were drawn that way on purpose. That's how they were uh, intentionally made, and they did a good job with it. It made it easy to cheer for the side that we were supposed to cheer for. One of those unexpected consequences, though, I think, for many of us that grew up with that kind of being part of our formative way of thinking of the world, is that it took evil and reduced it to a cartoon villain. Like too easily and too readily when we, when we go to speak of evil in the world, we either are forced to speak of one of two things, some sort of kind of cartoon villain, uh, I'm out to get you, or the atrocities of the worst of the worst on the news. The serial killers, the things that we watch on CSI or Dateline or something of the sort. And it's so easy to create a definition of evil that is almost cartoonish but always other to me. I don't, I mean, and this may not come as a surprise to you, but I don't struggle with being a cartoon villain. That's not something on a daily basis that I, I, I struggle with. I don't sit down in my prayers in the evening and confess my sins to the Lord and say, I, I'm so sorry, Lord, I turned into a cartoon villain today. And I tried to exterminate an entire species of animals on the planet because I could. It felt like the thing to do. I, I think too readily Christians have kind of really fallen into these categories with evil where we, we make it like almost comedic in a way to keep it far away. In a way to kind of put it to say, well, that's what the bad guys struggle with. That's not something that I struggle with. I mean, I struggle with sin, sure, but evil? No, that's reserved for the bad guys. I think Titus 1, hopefully God willing, will be helpful for us today is actually what we have here in verses 10 through 16 is God's description of what evil looks like. It's not a description that's a a cartoon villain. This is not Gargamel being described by the Apostle Paul. This is the Lord describing the kind of evil that you and I have to interact with on a daily basis. This is God describing what the struggles of mankind, men and women, boys and girls, what we are up against on a daily basis. And worse yet, what springs up out of our insides, what overflows from our hearts, Now, as it begins, all of these things, interestingly, are described in relationship to something else. This is an intriguing thing perhaps for you, it certainly is for me, that to be reminded that evil, by definition, is a copying and a distorting of something good. Good came first, God came first, and evil as a result is always defined as a a distortion of some pre-established relationship. 
It's taking some connection that God has made and it's turning it upside down or inside out or backwards to make it so much worse. And what's happened here in Titus chapter 1 is you have a church on the island of Crete that has been planted by Paul and some others. And as they've first kind of begun growing and they're finally kind of getting out of that toddler phase, they've run into false teachers that are teaching the people evil. And so you have this kind of contrast. Verses 5 through 9 describe the good guys, elders, above reproach, husband of one wife, not open to the charge of debauchery as children or insubordination. He's a, a good steward, above reproach again, not arrogant, quick-tempered, drunkard, violent, greedy for gain. These are the heroes. The men who look like God, the men who live like Jesus, the men who follow in the footsteps of their master. 10 through 16 describe for us the, the villains, the evil in their midst. And we're going to look at them and their characteristics and kind of in relationship, the relationships that they've broken. Kind of out of order as we've kind of clumping the various themes together. But first, as we see the, the bad guys, the evil, the forces of evil have a distorted relationship with God's law. It's interesting that even as Paul begins to describe these false teachers, where does he start? For there are many. Now, this is an amazing statement. You've got to think that on an island of this size, that church probably is significantly smaller than this church. I mean, it's a good guess to think that we probably might have more people here today than they did, um, which is an intriguing thing to think about. But there are many who by definition, their, their very nature, their behaviors, the way that they're acting to those around them, to the law of the Lord is marked, is defined by insubordination. They're a people group that the evil ones do not respect the law of God. They buck against it. They chafe against it. They resist it. They fight against it constantly. Verse 16 comes back to it the way the section ends. These people, the bad guys, the evil ones, they profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable. Wow, that's a word. Disobedient. Those that disobey the law of God. Now again, for those of us that struggle with this kind of cartoon villain syndrome, it's easy for us to say, well, bad is bad when it's out there, and it's, it's bad when they're doing some kind of cartoonishly evil thing, and it's interesting that God's starting point for defining evil is breaking His law. And that's intriguing because I don't know if you caught it, but we already just confessed that we all do that. We've already confessed that this problem of breaking God's law, of being rebels 
against the law of God. That's not a problem that's only out there. That's a problem that's in here. A problem that comes from the inside. I was thinking of just kind of what this would, how to put this into kind of emotional terms and how we think about God's law. And I was reminded in college, so my roommates in college, we uh, would combine as many rooms as we could and get as many men to stay and sleep in one room so that we could have playrooms and, you know, cause all sorts of trouble. And so what we did is we took all of our metal bunk beds and kind of rearranged all of the legs to the bunk beds so that we could compress the bunk beds as much as possible. So I spent most of my college career, when I turned on my side, my shoulders touched the top of the bunk above me, right? Most of us, our beds were about that tall, which was great for the slender guys. I lived with one roommate for an entire semester who was not a slender man, and about once a week would dream that the beds collapsed on him. He struggled with claustrophobia, and he he struggled because when he was sleeping, he would touch the bed above him. And then he dreamed that the beds would collapse on him, and he was just hemmed in and trapped. And so in his sleep, would scream like he was dying, never wake up. Everybody else woke up. We never went back to sleep. The claustrophobia that he struggled with on a daily basis, just being in his bed, drove him insane. Now, what a great illustration. Our bed, honestly, that's supposed to be the safest place you have, right? You're supposed to love your bed. That's a good thing. You're supposed to love being under the covers. You were supposed to love your bed. But when it becomes a place of claustrophobia, of being trapped, of hemmed in where you're stuck and it's no longer safe. Friends, God's law is supposed to be like that bed. God's law is the place where we are safe as a Christian. It's the place where we find life and where we find rest, where we find how we are designed to live. It's where we find the good life. And so many of us struggle with claustrophobia against God's law. That's called being insubordinate or rebellious. We're rather than finding God's law as our safety, as our haven, as our our rest and our hope. Look what Jesus has done. He's redeemed me and he's given me the way to live. Rather than finding the comfort and the consolation of the closeness, we resent it and despise it and hate it. It's intriguing the starting point for a conversation about evil is a distorted relationship with God's law, a, a, a despising of it, a disregarding of it, a disobeying of it. It doesn't stop with the law. As you would guess, sin never stays confined. It's messy. It's contagious. Again, think a toddler with glitter. It ends up everywhere. Sin morphs through all of the parts of our minds and personalities. And from the law, we then move to truth. It's gross evil, not a cartoonish caricature, but instead, a great reality ends up with a distorted relationship with the truth. 
Verse 10, where we started there, insubordinate, rejection of the law, empty talkers, and deceivers. It's in the very essence, the very nature of who these evil people are, what evil looks like to be deceptive and untrue. Verse 12, you get one of the weirder parts of the New Testament. Paul quotes Greek philosopher with a massive insult and then immediately says it's true, which is absolutely spectacular. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars. Indeed, this testimony is true, verse 13. It's intriguing that not only a relationship with the law that's then broken, but a relationship with reality that's distorted. A relationship with that which is known and believed that is distorted so that what pours out are lies instead of truths. What is professed is unbelief. It's distorted. It's unreal. Confused. Instead of reality. Instead of that which is known, created by God and explained by Him. You find that concerning situation with the relationship of the law, of, of that chafing against it, this idea of kind of claustrophobia against God's law. Here we run into this other problem of when we find ourselves not in love with the truth. I think this is one of those that's so intriguing because for so many kind of Christians, if we were to kind of rank the scale of sins, we would oftentimes put lying somewhere near the bottom. I mean, it's not good. You shouldn't do it. But I mean, everybody lies to their kids, right? It's Christmas time. We always lie about their presents, right? And it's intriguing how actually, no, that's not God's opinion of the matter. In fact, actually, God puts lying very, very high up near the top. Jesus describes himself as the way, the truth incarnate and the life. When we find ourselves, friends, not speaking the truth, speaking falsehood, man, it should be like warning bells going off in our head. If Christ is the truth incarnate, when I lie, I am on the other side. I've switched languages. I'm not speaking the language of my Savior. I'm speaking the language of the enemy. Remember how he's described in the Scriptures? He is the the father of lies. Now, I, I find this to be incredibly interesting because, I mean, as Christians, we never lie, do we? I mean, we never lie. I mean, I'm a pastor, right? I I interact with people who tell the truth all the time, always, all the time. I never have to worry about this, right? No. No, the sad reality is that we live in a land and have hearts 
that are so much more in love with our own opinions than in love with the truth of God. If I had a dollar for every time I had been told, well, I think something instead of, well, God thinks something, who man, I'd, I'd have at least two dollars. I'd have several. <laughs> but to think again, we, we live in a land where, where this is so common, isn't it? That we've begun to define truth by how we feel and what we love. And if it makes us happy, whether or not it has any bearing on reality at all. I remember one of the previous presidential elections. This is one of those kind of great moments in television. Uh, they sent some guy around on the streets asking um, just random passersby in some city uh, a question and put them on video. They knew they were being videoed. He had his microphone for the camera and everything. And asked them who, he, who they thought won the debate between the president's wives the previous night. And asked, you know, did this candidate's wife or did this candidate's wife win the debate? Some of you laugh, you know, because that's never happened before in history. And it was amazing watching these young people be like, well, obviously she destroyed her. I mean, I was really embarrassed for her how poorly she con- you know, conducted herself. I just, I have to say, I really think that person did a fantastic job. And to watch them just hold the lie the whole way through. Meanwhile, the guy interviewing was just having a blast with it because it's never existed. It never has. But oh boy, they were willing to say it. They were willing to believe it. A distorted relationship with God's law, a distorted relationship with the truth where our mouths are filled with our own opinions our own opinions being proclaimed as God's truth, our own opinions being proclaimed as God's reality. Third, a distorted relationship with obedience itself. Back to verse 10, where we started, there are many who are insubordinate. There's the rebellion to the law. The deceivers, there's the speaking of something other than the law, as if it is law, but the word I skipped, the empty talkers. Empty talkers, the people who pour forth words that never produce transformation. This is described further in verse 16. Again, kind of the neat, tidy brackets opening and beginning with the same themes. These people, the evil, they profess to know God. They say it with their mouths. But they deny Him by their works. They say one thing, but do another. Now, what we're talking about here, again, is, is we're not talking about the, the occasional. Now, every time we occasionally do this, it is sin. The huge category of evil that they're talking about here is these people that are defined. 
by saying one thing but acting another. In fact, so much so they're saying that they're Christian. They're, they're saying the truth of God. They're saying what life is supposed to be, but then when it comes time to look at what's produced, it's, it's nothing. It's empty. Meaningless. Jude takes up this concept and puts together a string of some of my favorite kind of word pictures in the entirety of the Scriptures. Verses 12 and 13 of Jude, he says, these are blemishes on your love feast. Okay, that's fine as they feast with you. Without fear, these people, looking after themselves, they are waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees laid in autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the utter gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. So four word pictures, waterless clouds. What a great picture. In a country that has a low rainfall, who struggles with you know, getting water of any kind, clouds would be a sign of great blessing from God because it doesn't rain that often, and when it does, it's really special. And how much of a letdown would it be to see this great big dark cloud roll over for them and think, there, my crops are going to get the water they need, and it just passes over with no rain at all. It's a whole lot of something. It's a whole lot of nothing. Waterless clouds, fruitless trees, fruit trees that grow or maybe don't grow, maybe even perhaps look the part but never actually yield a harvest. What good are they if they don't produce fruit of any kind? Wild waves of the sea, not waves that are useful in any way, but the waves that would distort a boat and destroy a boat, knock it over. Wandering stars, I love that. Wandering stars. Why? What is a wandering star? Well, in a culture and a community that would navigate at night by the stars, having stars that move isn't really helpful. <laughs> having them where it was there last week and it's over there this week and it's supposed to be there is really useless. If you have a northern star, you should have it in the north. If your northern star suddenly is, you know, over in the east, that's really unhelpful. That's what is being described with these, this kind of category for evil is people who talk the part. They may know their Bible, they may be able to speak their Bible, but it's never acted out. It's not put into practice. It doesn't create love. It doesn't nourish the love of Christ in their hearts. It doesn't produce transformation in their hands. It's empty words with no obedience. Again, friends, if we find ourselves in a place where emotionally we're chafing against God's law, we find ourselves in a situation where we know we're lying. Or we find ourselves in a situation where we know we're saying things, but we're not really willing to change. You should be worried. It doesn't stop. I wish it would. A distorted relationship with their passions. The law, 
truth, obedience, but even their own desires. Again, verse 12, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. They can't control their own desires. I love the the original language on this one actually just reads lazy stomachs. (laughs) They are so much governed by their passions, it's like they're actually just stomachs of their own. They can't control themselves. Whatever they want is kind of, it's dominating to them. They're like, ooh, I need this thing, I need this thing, I think I'm going to go with whatever. They're just governed by whatever their body wants. Lazy gluttons, the descriptor before that, they're evil beasts, they're like animals. That's historically been one of the things that has marked mankind different from the animals, which is we have the ability to use our brains and govern our passions. And that's why it's sometimes so hilarious when you go to feed your dog, and they're like, and just food's everywhere. And you're like, whoa, man, calm down. They can't. I gotta eat right now, I gotta eat right now, I gotta eat right now. I'm like, I'm gonna eat, you'll feed tomorrow. Feed you in the morning, like, calm down. They can't. Watch how the dogs go crazy when you go to give them a treat. They go absolutely lose their minds. We're people. We don't do that. Humans control our passions. We control our desires. We control our drives. We govern them. They don't govern us. But the people who are evil, this evil, this idea is, no, it's in that that actually the desires govern. This is the one that is, I think, verse 11, such an awkward illustration of it. They must be silenced, these people on the wrong side, the evil ones. They must be silenced. You've got to shut them up in the church. Why? They're upsetting whole families by teaching, interesting, how are they upsetting families? By teaching things they shouldn't teach for their own profit. Their own desires are such that they're benefiting off of the people of God. Rather than feeding the sheep, they're profiting off the sheep. They're preying upon them. They're using them so that they grow wealthier, fatter, more pleasurable, or whatever else it is. John Bunyan kind of attacked this idea in Pilgrim's Progress. If you don't read Pilgrim's Progress, you should. Uh, If you don't read it regularly, you should. It's in that category of book that it's probably beneficial for you to read once every uh, two to five years. I encourage you to get a commentary on it if you can. I think Derek Thomas has one out that's excellent. But in Bunyan's, uh, in the House of Interpreter, which is where Christian has kind of come in and he's beginning to understand the Bible kind of allegorically um, through the interactions with the Holy Spirit. He's taken into a room where he watches two boys playing. And one boy, uh, everything that he gets, he immediately consumes it. They hand him a toy. He plays with it. He breaks it and uses it to its full. So that he's left around him with just kind of shattered toys all around him. And there's another boy sitting next to him that has no real things in front of them, but is waiting for all of the good things. And Christian kind of asks, like, what's going on with these two kids? Like, this is really weird. And the interpreter of the Holy Spirit kind of answers him and says, these two boys are passion and patience. 
passion is governed by his desires, and it's ruining his life because he has all of his joys in the exact moment that they're given to him, and then they pass away because he's governed by them. Patience, on the other hand, is waiting and is the wiser of the two and then will have his joys for all eternity. It ends with the line, it's best not to covet the things that are now, but wait for the things that are to come. To have lives that are dominated by a control over ourselves so that we're not easily manipulated by our bellies or by our egos or by our sexual pleasures or by anything else. One of the great illustrations of this from I guess more recent literature than 16th century. One of my favorite books growing up, certainly one of my favorite movies, but Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Willy Wonka. I love that. I love that. I know some of you are making faces at me. It's okay. But you have this great story of, right, Willy Wonka brings in the five kids to see who will inherit uh, his vast empire. And each of those children, four of them, are caricatures of a child that is governed by his passions. You have Augustus Gloop, the German who is not able to be governed by anything but his belly, and as a result is destroyed by his love for chocolate, as some of us have been, I'm sure. Violet Beauregard is governed by her habits, her pride in connection with her kind of constant gum chewing, and it ends up being her destruction. Mike TV governed by his longing to turn his brain off with the television, And the highlight, the pinnacle, the most perfect character ever written of this, Veruca Salt. The little girl who is so governed by impatience in the movie, she has the perfect song. It's the perfect song. I want it all. I want it now. And how much of a we living that life? Briefly, The evil spreads not just to our desires and our passions, but even to our identities. Verse 13, therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. 14, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. And this Jewish myth, as best we can tell, is probably um, the outworking of what we've seen in other books where they have this idea that their their, um, genealogies have become so important to them uh, that they've begun to find their meaning in their Jewishness. They've begun to find their meaning in their identity, in their family lineage. They've become to define themselves entirely by that. Rather than defining themselves by Christ Rather than saying, I am first and foremost a Christian and everything else that isn't in line with that gets executed in my life. They've let this distorted identity take over. Now, interestingly, Judaism is a good thing at this point in history. (laughs) It's good. But a good thing has become distorted and as a result has become bad. And how often do we see this in our own lives? We have good things that have gone corrupt. And the corruption has spread and these good things have become quite evil to us. And lastly, 
a distorted relationship with the very gospel of King Jesus. This is, I think, probably the the primary driving force behind it all. Verse 10, again, there are many who are insubordinate, they're rebellious against the law of God, Uh, they're empty talkers, they're not producing uh, the obedience to the law of God, deceivers, Uh, they are speaking untruthfully about the law of God, but especially those of the circumcision party. And we do actually know very clearly what these people were holding, roughly, was to say that your standing before God, His love for you, His delight in you, is defined not by Christ and His obedience, but defined by your obedience. Defined by your circumcision, if you have or have not had that, if you were a man, uh, it was defined by your Jewishness. How well were you being the right kind of person? And interestingly, kind of upsetting the entire balance of all of kind of what the gospel is working at. What Paul's correcting and what Titus is going to be teaching is that Jesus lived a perfect life so that he is accounting for your inability to do so. He died a death he didn't deserve to account for yours that you do deserve. He remained under the power of the grave for a while and then was resurrected by the word of his power so that he might be victorious over sin so that you might too. And all of that is given away to his people freely. It's freely given. I mean, it cost him everything, but it cost us nothing. It's freely given. And what the circumcision party was doing was trying to add kind of asterisks to the free gift. It's like a a timeshare presentation. Free gift! You get an iPad if you come listen to this presentation and do these 17 other things. And oh yeah, by the way, it's an iPad. You know, pad, but the A is, or O isn't an O, it's an A, and it was made by some other company. It's not actually even an Apple product at all. That's functionally what they're doing is they're saying, like, we believe in the gospel, but there's an asterisk, which is, but you have to be a good person to deserve it. You have to be the kind of person who deserves the gospel instead of the kind of person who doesn't deserve it, but God makes different and changes. He gets at this again in verse 14 with the commands of these people who are turning them away from the truth, a kind of people who are being led away from the forgiveness that is found in Christ Jesus. Friends, I, I would end with this very brief but important application. It is so easy for us, I know this because it's my own heart, I'm not not just talking yours, I'm talking my own. It's so easy for us to think of sin and evil in such silly terms that we can put it so far away from us that think it's such an, an other people thing it's the political party I didn't vote for. It's, it's them. And to push evil so far away from myself 
that I create a fertilized soil in my own heart for it to grow. That I put it so far out there in my head that those are the bad guys that struggle with it. That I actually water it and fertilize it and weed it in my heart. So that the socially acceptable sins of a quiet rebellion against God's law, the socially acceptable sin of speaking my own opinion as if it's God's truth and believing it as God's truth, the socially acceptable sin of not actually growing because I struggle, don't we all? The socially acceptable sin of being governed by our passions the socially acceptable sin of defining myself apart from the Word of God. And and then we're surprised when we don't have great gospel grace in our hearts. Friends, when when you're planting sin in your heart and you're watering it and you're nourishing it and you're watching it grow, it's no surprise that your faith is not in a good place. It's no surprise that you wake up and you're like, well, I just don't think Jesus is that special. No joke. You've been nourishing the evil inside. Because the reality is, and going back to it, the cartoon villains were actually helpful. Because what they did is they took the evil things that exist in such terrible ways and present them in such obvious ways that if I were actually willing to consider it is honestly a bit more of what my heart looks like than I'd like to admit. I mean, if I'm going to be honest, Wiley e. Coyote, a bit more of a kindred spirit than I'd like to admit on the inside. And as a result, I probably ought to be a bit more careful Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for Jesus who forgives sins. We thank you for your word which tells us how we are to live. These are the kind of sermons that it's so easy for us to see how far short we fall. To see the ways in which we nourish sin in our hearts. And Lord, we confess, we confess that we do this. We don't like it. We're not proud of it. It's not good. It is evil. And we ask that you would forgive us and we ask that you would stop us Lord, if we have these sins that we are harboring in our souls and nourishing in our souls, would you please rip them out? And Lord, we admit that there will probably be some in the room that would say, well, this is for those other people again. And would you show mercy and show them their sin as well? All so that we would love Jesus the Savior of sinners, in whose name we pray, amen.